Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And my interesting person this week is Seth Barron. Um, he's a writer and a managing editor over at uh, the Claremont Institute's publication, The American Mind, which I highly recommend generally. It's, it's, um, it's a relatively recent uh, addition to the Claremont roster, just a few years, but I think it's it's definitely one of my go-to places for interesting commentary and analysis. Uh, but he uh, is an, a managing editor over there. And then he's also the author of a recently re- released book, The Last Days of New York, A Reporter's True Tale. So welcome, Seth, to High Noon. Thanks, Inez. I'm really glad to be here. So we're going to get into a series of discussions, I think, that will sound really familiar to just about every urban dwelling American, um, regardless of whether they're in New York City or LA, San Francisco, um, even some of the red state cities, right? Like, um, like Austin. Um, a lot of the topics are going to sound um, like, unfortunately, really familiar to people, right? Crime, schools, homelessness. Uh, but I want to start by asking you about your ties to the city that you wrote about. So I mean, how long have you lived in New York? Well, I was born in New York, and then uh, my parents moved away, uh, but I spent a lot of time here growing up, and then, you know, I've lived full-time in the city about 25 years, and, you know, I raised my children here, and, you know, and so forth, so I'm pretty, um, I'm pretty well-established. Yeah, I'm, I'm always uh, telling people now as a joke um, that because I moved to New York in the, the depths of the pandemic when everyone was moving out, I should get like a couple extra lines on my like New Yorker uh, clock because I moved here in December okay. 2020. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> I should get Why a little, little extra on my... Um, no, but you, you've definitely seen the city through um, a whole kind of uh, its ups and downs over over the decades. I'm sure you've seen it change quite a bit over those years. Um, in, in your book, though, you focus on the tenure of, of Mayor Bill de Blasio, right? Um, but can we, because you've been in the city so long, um, you know, maybe let's start by talking through the the fall of New York um, in the 70s and 80s, and then its rebirth, which at that time had seen, like, it seemed impossible, I think, to a lot of people that New York was ever going to recover from the spiral of homelessness, crime, addiction, drugs, um, that were making what was making the city quite unlivable uh, in, into the 80s. So how, how did New York manage to pull itself out of a spiral last time? Um, it's a great question. And it's a really long and sort of complicated story that I, I try to sum up, you know, in a thumbnail, uh, like in my book. Um, yes, it's true. Starting in the 60s, through the 70s and 80s, uh, New York went through a kind of major decline. Uh, it had made a huge fiscal crisis in the early 70s, where the, you know, very expansive localized welfare state of the 60s um, essentially bankrupted the city. Uh, crime, you know, was rising. Uh, it, by the time crack came around in the, in the mid-80s, uh, murders really spiked up. Uh, reaching in 1991, I guess it it, it had a um, a peak of uh, over 2,000 murders. Uh, after that, it's a really uh, interesting phenomenon. Uh, the the new you know when when Giuliani came in in 1994, he imposed a you know, and this happened a little bit under Dinkins too but essentially uh, the adoption of broken windows policing. 
uh, which is like a community policing, community focused policing effort uh, based on having cops on the street. And, and the idea is that uh, petty crime, the sort of thing that is thought of as like minor crime, like vandalism, uh, public disorderliness, uh, drinking in public, graffiti, uh, things like that, which, you know, historically cops had seen as just not worth their while to deal with. Uh, that's the province of social mm -hmm. workers. But the idea is that, well, no, things like that create uh, a, a criminogenic environment. They create the conditions. They, they, they're a signal that disorder is, a, um, is permitted. Uh, the idea is that a functional neighborhood doesn't need a lot of police because people, you know, keep eyes on the street in the Jane J famous James Jane Jacobs formulation that people keep an eye on things. When people are no longer keeping an eye on things, then you need the police to come in and impose a certain degree of order. The thing is, broken windows policing does not mean uh, zero tolerance. It does not mean going out and arresting everybody. Uh, in some kind of, you know, heavy-handed police state style. What it means is, like, providing correction where necessary and reestablishing, uh, you know, re-signaling that, that, that there's a demand for, for some order. Um, and, you know, this coupled with uh, in, intensive policing in um, when, when violent crime flared up. This is like the beginning of the CompStat era, like a very data-driven approach to, to policing. Uh, slowly, slowly, they managed to drive crime down. And with crime going down, and, you know, and other uh, efforts like at um, with, with like homelessness and safety on the subways, uh, it gradually, you know, New York City, Manhattan became more appealing to businesses. And, you know, the story goes from there. It became kind of a virtuous circle and things improved. I mean, that's, you know, a very, very, very uh, brief sketch. And, you know, some would say it's simplistic, but that's essentially what happened. Well, it certainly seems like we're on the opposite kind of cycle now where, I mean, frankly, compared to other cities, uh, I mean, New York started out so incredibly safe. Um, I mean, it's hard to communicate if, if people haven't spent time in New York City, let's say, uh, I don't know, in, in 2015 or 2013 um, versus other cities in, you know, like, I don't know, I was living in Washington, D.C., which even even when it was, um, you know, not in this more recent cycle of decline, uh, was just a substantially more dangerous city. I mean, you always had to keep your head on a swivel walking around um, in a lot of the neighborhoods um, in, in D.C. And that was always just part of the city life. But it, it, it was for me anyway, it was like uh, personally just incredible how, you know, I, I could walk across the entire city um, in, in, in New York and not feel um like at all threatened or like, of course things do happen. I mean, there, every large city has crime, but New York really was spectacularly safe for a long time. Unfortunately, it seems like we're going in the, that, that opposite spiral direction. Like I said, where it, it seems like crime reports are going up and up um, that, that element of disorder that you're hinting at, that's kind of hard to nail down or describe, but that feeling that perhaps 
you know, that law and order doesn't quite exist or isn't quite as established um, as, as it ought to be. Uh, that, that seems to be coming back. I mean, do, do you think that New York City is in another spiral downwards like the 80s? And if so, you know, is there any hope of pulling it back out of that spiral? Uh, those are great questions. Well, I think uh, statistically, yes. I mean, we're, we're clearly, uh, the crime numbers are not going the right way. Uh, murders are well up over the last two years. Um, just violent street incidents, are, felony assaults are up. Uh, Grand Theft Auto is up. Uh, burglaries apparently are down a little bit, but sometimes it's hard to tell. Uh, but generally, yeah, things are not going in the right direction. And uh, what's very interesting is that, you know, de Blasio and, you know, people on the left like to say, well, this is all because of COVID, uh, you know, and various, you know, COVID exposed all of the inequities in our society and all the income inequality and, you know, presto crime dysfunction. Um, but it predates that, uh, starting from when de Blasio took over, there was a steady effort to, uh, throttle the police to change statutorily how crime is defined to, you know, release people from jail, uh, on, on many fronts, this took, this, this took effect. And yeah, things don't unwind all at once. You know, to paraphrase Adam Smith, there's a lot of ruin in a city. Uh, you know, we, we had this virtuous circle, uh, this, you know, this positive energy uh, towards, you know, pro-social activity. And it takes a while for that to unwind. But, you know, from, or for instance, the city council uh, I guess it was in 2014, 15, decriminalized a host of what they called minor offenses, uh, smoking marijuana in public, uh, public urination, hanging out in parks when they're closed, um, van, you know, graffiti. Now, these are all things, these uh, jumping the turnstile in the subway. Now, there's a myth in America that people are, particularly black people, are routinely swept up and locked up for incredibly minor violations like littering. And that once they touch the criminal justice system, they wind up, you know, spiraling down into total depravity. Now, in reality, very few people were ever locked up, say, for jumping the turnstile or littering or smoking marijuana. These were largely, yes, they were on the books as crimes, minor crimes, uh, but they served as a pretext to allow the police to do policing and, you know, create order where there's disorder. So say someone complains that people are fighting or harassing people going in and out of a building, well, the police can show up and if there's evidence of something going on or if someone has a knife or they're smoking marijuana, well, then they can, you know, if necessary, 
arrest people for um, these types of crimes. So yes, there's a pretextual uh, element to it. But once you start eliminating the ability for the police to, to use these tools, well, then you've kind of, uh, you know, just allowed the, you know, the dysfunctional elements of society to uh, step on the gas. There's, there's no check. There's no brake uh, that, that one can put on them. Um. I think this this point is just an underappreciated generally um, in in all of our criminal justice discussions because we're always hearing from the left and even from the right um, that we need to um, you know for example release people who and, and they give the impression that there are just you know millions of people in the United States locked up for exclusively for example low level drug possession right mm -hmm. um and and i think what folks imagine when they hear that kind of rhetoric is somebody was arrested for smoking a joint in an alleyway right and then got you know booked into the system and and as you say as you referred to right got into this sort of cycle of, of contact with the criminal justice system um, and ended up serving long sentences and as far as i I'm, i can tell in, in my own examination of the statistics uh about who's in prison um to the extent that that's true, it's it's often uh, because it's, it's as you say pretextual. Um, the, the the police, for example, arrested somebody on and then he was charged with with a whole bunch of charges, but then pled down to drug possession, right? And some of those charges might have been more more violent, or maybe uh, dealing narcotics, or um, you know assault, or um, you know, brandishing a weapon, some of these things, and then pled down to, so as you mm -hmm. say, and, and this is something that's, I think, really difficult for folks to talk about, because it, it it does seem ridiculous, right? Even to somebody like me, I consider myself like a law and order, you know, type conservative. I, I don't believe in putting people, you know, in prison for smoking a joint. That doesn't seem like proportional um, to right. me at all. But we're, what we're really missing is, is what that actual work of policing, it inherently requires a bit of judgment, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, I mean, if you looked at the, the pre-COVID numbers uh, of people on Rikers Island, the number of people who were jailed on, any, uh, on an, any average day for smoking marijuana or for jumping a subway turnstile was one or two. Uh, it's a very rare thing. And across the country... Most people in prison are there for very serious crimes, uh, you know, violent felonies, which is why, like, honest criminologists on the left who want, who, you know, they're pro-decarceration, they want to see people out of, they want jails to be closed, they will admit this. They'll say, yeah, you know, we've already done all the low-hanging fruit. There's very few people in jail for low-level possession charges or, you know, stuff like that, even for low-level dealing. Uh, they'll say, well, yeah, that's why we have to start um, making the tough decision not to put violent people in prison. Uh, we're seeing this across the country now with prosecutors who are declining to charge people uh, or to hold them, even if they've committed violent crimes. Um, so there's really a shift 
in, or, or this is like the left is pushing for a, a major, very radical shift in how we conceive of crime and punishment. And, you know, I think traditionally people have just assumed, well, if you commit a violent crime, you should go to prison for various reasons, you know. Okay, rehabilitation, retribution. Uh, another important reason is incapacitation. Like someone who's in jail, um, they can't do any more crime, uh, you know, at least against the public. And that's not an that's not an inconsiderable reason to put people in jail. Um, but you know, there there's really a shift now to thinking like, okay, well, just because someone has committed a violent crime, maybe there's not a reason. Maybe that's not a good reason to put people away. Uh, I guess the idea is that being put in prison is worse than that. The cure is worse than than the um, than the harm that it's almost like the worst thing you can do. The worst thing society can do is put people in prison, regardless of what they do. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the point of view of the, the radical left, which is not so radical anymore. I mean, it's almost mainstream. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about the, the mainstreaming of these, this kind of ideology, even among the prosecutors, right? Um, you know, famously with Chesse Bowden out in, in San Francisco, uh, who, I mean, he's even he is backpedaling a little bit because the policies are so unpopular and there there is actually a recall out against mm -hmm. him, including some of his former uh, lawyers from his office saying, like, you wouldn't allow us to do our jobs, even in terms of prosecuting very serious violent crime. Uh, but there does seem to be uh, sort of a generation of DAs um, in, in, in the last, let's say, three to five years who have been elected in some of these very blue cities um, who don't believe, as you say, in the fundamental uh, prosecution even of, <laughs> of violent crime. They, they, and they, as you say, they say that openly. It's like, I'm not slandering them or putting words in their mouths. They are quite open about the fact that they just don't believe in incarceration almost just about ever as a solution to, to any kind of violent crime. That seems to be the point of view. Um, somebody came up with this idea that, oh, well, why don't we just elect our people to these district attorney positions? Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know why they never thought of it before. Like, you know, district attorneys and prosecutors have traditionally been, you know, people who ran on law and order type uh, platforms. And now they've realized, well, you know, these are very left-leaning cities that elect essentially, you know, socialists or, you know, hard progressives or whatever. So let's, let's see if we can elect some of our, our guys in, um, in these seats. And you've seen it around the country, like Philadelphia. Uh, they elected a top criminal defense attorney, Krasner, to be the district attorney. Philadelphia is now uh, breaking its historic records for murders. Uh, and Krasner was reelected uh, just last year. Uh, Chesa Boudin, yeah, he's facing a recall. But, you know, it's not clear to me, even with what's going on in San Francisco, that he would uh, be recalled. There's a strange, just, I mean, it's almost like a weird kind of masochism that people in these cities 
feel that, well, yeah, things are bad, but, you know, it's the whole root causes idea. Like, the only way to deal with crime is to address the root causes, and these are, you know, social causes. Um, but the thing is, it's very difficult to identify social causes, root cause, root social causes. It's difficult to address them. Uh, and it's not really clear that most, that violent crime is actually being driven by inequity or income inequality. Uh, there's very little evidence demonstrating that. It's just an assertion that's, you know, commonly put out there and it goes unquestioned. So yeah, no, I agree. Let's talk about that for a moment because there wasn't always this, what now seems to us to be an obvious nexus between poverty and crime, right? Um, in, in the 1950s, for example, or in the 40s, 30s in, in cities, um, you didn't have that kind of stratification. Uh, I, I'm not saying that poor neighborhoods didn't have maybe perhaps slightly higher crime than, than richer neighborhoods, but one, the, the delineations between the um, income levels of neighborhoods were more mixed, uh, in urban areas. And two, um, there wasn't that like obvious nexus that if you were, for example, in a working class neighborhood, that it was going to mean high crime. Um, you know, when did that nexus really come together to the point where, you know, today in 2021, right? Um, we just assume that poverty and crime in terms of neighborhoods go together. Well, I mean, Look, I don't know all the data on this and all the history. I suspect that poor neighborhoods have always had more crime. Um, the point, though, is that, okay, like with murder, for instance, I mean, New York City during the Depression had 25% unemployment. There was massive privation. There was homelessness. But there weren't very many murders. Uh, you know, later in the 60s and 70s, I mean, the city was you know, pretty bad. And there was a lot of high crime, but then there was a lot more murder. You know, I mean, I suppose the great migration, like the, the massive uh, movement of millions of African-Americans from the South to the Northern cities, uh, you know, to take jobs that, you know, soon kind of went away, uh, the great society and the, you know, or the building of the welfare state, which, you know, paradoxically appears to have immiserated many people uh, and locked them into generational poverty rather than helping to lift them up. You know, there's, there's a substantial literature on, on, on this historical movement and the creation of the black underclass in the cities, you know, which is honestly where, um, you know, no one will, no one disputes that that's, the source of like a great deal of the violent crime uh, facing the cities today. Um, look, these things are obviously have historical, they, you know, we're in history. I mean, you can't pretend like there aren't historical factors, but addressing them by through decriminalization, decarceration, depolicing does no favors to anybody, least of all the communities that are afflicted by uh, the criminals, which tend to be the same communities that they come from. 
So, you know, it's no, it's no secret that, yes, uh, most murders in major cities are committed by African-Americans and their victims are primarily African-Americans. So we're not doing anybody, uh, we're not doing the black community a lot of favors by not prosecuting um, their sons and brothers when they go out and kill people. Um, you know, another, another thing that seems to come along with this idea that the, um, that, that all kinds of social ills, including crime come from these larger, some stem from larger social forces and social ills that then have to be, you know, reconstructed or, or, um, you know, completely taken apart and rebuilt. I mean, this, this is the kind of the rhetoric around crime and policing. It's also, uh, sort of a similar mentality when it comes to homelessness and mental illness, right? Um, that the, the problem is fundamentally uh, that, that these folks are either um, victims of income inequality and they are too poor uh, to, to house themselves and that the obvious solution to that is that we should just house them and that'll be the end of, of the story. But you write in this book, and, and there's increasing evidence from a lot of, of cities that are, are attempting these kinds of policies, that that just doesn't work because it doesn't actually address um, the reason that a lot of people are on the streets. Well, yeah. I mean, homelessness is an interesting question. Uh, and there's different, like, it, it, you can't paint it all with a broad brush. Um, homelessness on the West Coast and homelessness in New York City are, are very different. Um, when we talk about homelessness in New York City, like the shelter population, New York City has uniquely a right to shelter. Very few places have this. In fact, I'm not sure if anywhere else in the United States has this. Uh, it dates back to uh, a lawsuit uh, from 1980-81 called the, the Callahan decision, Callahan decree. Uh, it's a consent decree, and New York City agreed at the time to provide uh, shelter to, I think at the time it was about 2,000 people. Now, in the 40 years since, that's expanded, and now New York City provides shelter to 60 or 70,000 people. Um, now, most of these people are what they call our families, which means single mothers with children. Uh, that that comprises probably 40 or 50,000 people. And they're essentially housed in, you know, apartment style housing, uh, in shelters. Sometimes they rent them, you know, apartments called, that's called cluster housing in different, you know, this is like a major thing. And it, it, you know, it, it eats up $3 billion a year in, um, in, 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 uh, in revenue. Um, and then, you know, you, you do have a few thousand men and women who are in shelters. And then you have a few thousand people living on the streets. And those people are typically seriously mentally ill. Um, not always, but that's the general. Uh, when, when, when people think about homelessness in New York City, you think about people, you know, roaming around with ra in rags, pushing, you know, carts filled with their belongings, muttering, stuff like that. Um, so it's, it's really a mental illness problem. Uh, in California, from what I gather, it's largely a drug problem. 
Uh, you have people living in tents who are addicted to meth or heroin, you know, fentanyl. Uh, and that's like apparently like 90%, 95% of it is a drug issue. Now, obviously, there's a lot of mental illness there, too. And there's a lot of drugs in New York City. So, you know, these things interpenetrate. But, yeah, so you can't, you can't take a mentally a, a, a schizophrenic person who's not on their meds and give them an apartment and assume that everything's going to go well. You can't give a meth addict a really nice apartment and just say, okay, there you go, and we're going to pay for everything, and, and that's fine. Um, I mean, it's like pouring water into sand, for one thing. So, yeah, I mean... Look, there are root issues. And also it is, a, I mean, you don't go, you don't find homelessness in very poor cities like Baltimore and Detroit don't have significant homeless homelessness, you know, go to Jackson, Mississippi. You're not going to find a lot of homeless people because it's really cheap. So homeless people they either like squat somewhere or they live with a cousin or whatever. Um, so these are complicated questions. Yeah. What, what about, um, cause this is a, something that I kick around in my own head and I haven't really can't come to a definitive conclusion of what to do because in California, of course, Reagan as governor famously, um, loosened the line for when people will be involuntarily committed. Um, and a lot of folks on the left and the right point to that as perhaps the beginning of, Californian cities having a enormous homelessness problem um, that, that exactly as you say. Um, so in California, I think it's a lot of drugs, but it's, it's a lot of, I mean, mental illness overlapping with, dr with drug use and drug addiction. Um, and so the, the question then becomes what's the line to involuntarily commit someone? Because a lot of the folks on the street, actually they, they do have families Um and, and a lot of them have families who would happily take them, but they are, as you say, um, you know, they're, they're, for example, off their meds and refuse to take medicine for schizophrenia or um, delusions or, or various very serious mental illnesses. I mean, have we come to a point with, an, with this experiment? Because I'm very cognizant of the, the, the sort of civil liberties problem going the other way, right? Where you simply have people who are very eccentric, who, who might appear to others to make crazy decisions um, and, and there is an element of me that's uncomfortable with the government like, sort of drawing a line um, and saying, like, no, you're, you're not, um, you know, you're not capable of making your decision because we've decided that this decision you've made is crazy. Um, but but there, there does seem to we do, do have seem to have drawn the line too far in the other direction, because some of these people are not in touch with reality, like very obviously not in touch with reality on the street. And it's not compassionate to leave them there it seems to me um no uh you know new york city has a very ro has the, the most robust new york state actually has the most robust uh law for dealing with this problem uh it's called kendra's law uh known as a assisted outpatient treatment um and what it does is is it it permits anyone like like a family member or a police officer or a doctor can recommend uh, an individual to a, a judge who will have a hearing to determine if this person poses an immediate danger to themselves or others. 
uh, and they can essentially force someone to uh, comply with a doctor's orders regarding medication, treatment, et cetera, et cetera, um, under the threat of confinement. Uh, now, this you know sounds pretty harsh, but in fact, it's extraordinarily successful uh, in terms of reducing, uh, you know, getting people to be compliant with their medication or their their treatment regimen, uh, and in reducing contact with law enforcement, reducing episodes of violence, reducing suicide attempts, reducing you know criminal activity. The threat, just going before a judge, um, you know, sort of puts the fear of God in people, and they will uh, respond. So it's, um, look, it, you're right. It does nobody any favors to allow someone to, like, what's the difference if you're letting someone lie in their own filth on the street and everybody walks over them? Like, that's both the stereotypical behavior of like a silk hatted capitalist in some kind of like, you know, 1930s agitprop and the same attitude as a, you know, woke civil libertarian uh, who has a lot of compassion and doesn't want to like impose any controls on people. Like, at what point does compat to compassion and just cold brutality like meet, right? I mean that that you're you're sort of like I, I don't see where that how that 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 jibes. Um, so yeah, uh, Kendra's law is 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 very good. It's a very robust law. Unfortunately, they don't use it as much as they should. Um, typically, when a mentally, seriously mentally ill person uh, has an interaction with the police. Um, it's not the first time, right? They've been, they've been involved. They they're they're known to the system. They they've been in the system, uh, and these are often, you know, it's like a Pareto distribution. Like eighty percent of the contacts are with 20% of the population. Um, the, 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 the seriously mentally ill people who wind up, you know, committing major crimes, doing damage to people, they're, no, they're known. They're, 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 they've been out there. Um, so it's not something that couldn't be dealt with. Uh, look, it's true. Most people who have serious mental illness aren't violent. However, they do have a much higher tendency, propensity for violence than the general, than the, the general population. Uh, people don't like to talk about that. They say it's a, it's a question of stigma, but um, the late DJ Jaffe, who wrote about this like substantially and was a tireless activist, he would say, look, stigma is, is, is overstated as a problem in these, in these, these matters someone who's eating garbage and thinks he's napoleon and throwing his like you know feces around isn't troubled by stigma like he's not he's not not seeking help because he's worried about the stigma of mental illness 
Um, that's just something that's been pushed in there as a, uh, you know, essentially as an excuse. You know, we've, we've really expanded the focus um, on mental illness, like quote unquote mental illness, but it's been almost entirely on sort of, uh, I would say the, the quote unquote diseases of, of the, the wealthy and the, um, you know, relatively privileged, right. We, we've, our focus on mental illness is on, you know, minor depression, um, anxiety, quote unquote trauma. Right. Um, and yet at the same time, we are ignoring people who are totally out of touch with reality who have very, very serious and diagnosable mental illnesses um, and treating them as though they have the same capacity to make, make decisions um, mm -hmm. as the rest of us. And honestly, what, what I think is so bad about it, besides the obvious, um, you know, quality of life issues for people who do live in the city and, and um, for example, have to, to walk their kids past somebody, you know, screaming obscenities, or as you say, like throwing feces or something. Um, and, and the violence, that's obviously one part of it, but it also makes you, it hardens you. Um, that's the famous, right, idea that the part of the country has about people who live in the city, that they just step over somebody who might need help. Um, you know, it, it really hardens you when you see those kinds of things every day and see your inability to do anything about them or, or actually, you know, provide any help to people. Um, you know, I, I do think it makes us a like a heart more hardened and less compassionate community um seeing these kinds of things and seeing how intractable some of the problems are and how little you can do by giving somebody you know a dollar or five bucks or whatever it is um that it, it makes us all worse people i guess as i'm trying to say but um you know you you speaking of kids you you have kids in the city um you know it would be remiss of us not to touch on not just the the topic that you write about in your book um about equity and, and um, excellence in, in the school system and how those two things seem to be at odds. Uh, but, but also, of course, um, about the COVID closures uh, and, and how now um, New York City, I mean, out of the people I know who have left New York, um, every one of them is a parent. Mm. And out of the people who loved the city and wanted to stay, I mean, it really seems like uh, if, if you're like me, you're like a dinky, whatever, dual income, no kids couple, like you can kind of, it's, it's not as bad yet. Or, you know, the things that I, I want to do in my daily life, you know, I can go to a restaurant, I can still walk. It's not, the crime isn't so bad that I, I feel really like in danger anywhere. Um, but if you have kids, your interaction with all of this like changes so dramatically and the policies that New York city has put in place, both with regard to, you know, getting them a good education um, in the city. And then also the, the, the COVID policies really seems that they are really pushing parents out. That's making it harder and harder to really provide a good life for your kid in the city. Isn't it? Um, yeah, I would say that's accurate. I mean, here's the thing. New York city schools uh, have about 1.1 million kids, maybe a little less now. That, that's a lot of kids a lot of students, uh, there's thousands of schools. 85% um, of the New York City school population is non-white, okay? Uh, that means like black, Hispanic, Asian, white. 
under de Blasio and the progressive regime in particular, the obsession with racial, um, with basically the demographics of the classroom and, uh, you know, equity and ha have, have become the overriding concern. So the new idea is that every school ideally should match the demographics of the entire city red small. But, you know, that's kind of impossible to do because there is residential, what they call segregation. Now, to me, segregation means that there's legal, a legal effort to keep people apart. Uh, that's not the case in New York City. You know, anyone can live anywhere. And within reason, you can actually go to any school, to you know, a lot of schools. It's not that hard to get your kid into different schools in different parts of the, of the, of the city. I mean, elementary school, less so. Um, so taking the idea that the most important thing is to, you know, rearrange students on the basis of skin color in order to address the problems, uh, in the schools seems like a recipe for disaster. It's just, you know, bean counting of like the most mindless sort. And it's a good way to paper over the fact that um, the schools are essentially failing black and Latino kids. Uh, you know, the, I don't have the stats right off the top of my head, but the, the percentage of black fourth and eighth graders who don't uh, meet even basic proficiency in math and English is astounding. Um, now, are you going to say that that's the fault of the white kids and that the white kids are take, eating up all the, the resources unfairly? Well, in some places you can make that claim, maybe plausibly, by saying that tax money is unfairly distributed because school funding is based on property taxes. But in New York City, that's not the that's not the case. Every school receives the same amount of funding, based on you know very specific formulas. Yes, it's true. Some schools have uh, a PTA that raises more money for amenities. However, by and large, all the schools get the same amount of money. So it's not necessarily a resources question. Um, and plus, they spend a huge... I mean, New York City spends more money than any other jurisdiction in the, in the country. It's not with like... With the exception of Washington, D.C. With the exception of Washington, D.C. And $25,000 for, for our listeners' comparison. Uh, the average education per year in New York City, a public education, cost taxpayer $25,000 per year per kid. Uh, D.C. is pushing upwards towards $31,000. Uh, but th those are, you know... and. and it's just a lie that some of these like huge cities um, are are even in uh, in neighborhoods that are um, don't have the property tax base. Uh, it's it's just a lie that America underspends on our schools as a general rule, and it's particularly untrue uh, in in the major cities. That's right. It's it's just a lie, and uh, outcomes clearly aren't directly tied to. Uh, to the amount of money that's poured in. So, so what's going on? 
Um, I guess what we're seeing is what I call a, um, a no child gets ahead policy in New York City, where, uh, you know, they want to eliminate gifted and talented programs. They want to eliminate specialized high schools. They want to essentially eliminate magnet schools. They, they don't want any kind of uh, tracking of kids. Look, maybe that's a good idea. Um, I would say, what is it? Is there something magic that happens when black children are in the proximity or are, 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 have proximity to white children that somehow test scores rub off? Or is there something going on with the teachers and the school system that's a problem? Uh, you know, maybe charter schools, school choice, vouchers, that might be a solution. Um, you know, look, I don't want to totally denigrate. You know, there may be like major social or historical problems that are you know, keeping like schools that are 95% black down. You know, in theory, there shouldn't be a problem. Uh, you know, there's a lot written about this, and I'm not like an expert on educational theory, but it does seem like in a city where only 15% of the student body is white, um, if what you're depending on to save the schools is to spread the white kids around equitably, you're, you're, you're going to run into problems very quickly because there's not enough of them to go around. If, in fact, that's what, if, 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 Distribute the concentration of white kids is is really what's going on as as the main problem in the schools. Well, then, you know, I, I don't know what they're going to do about it. Uh, and yes, they're also driving people out because when they start monkeying around with um, school district boundaries and what's effectively busing, you know, well then wealthy parents don't want to deal with it. So they'll go somewhere else and get better schools for their money. Uh, so that's another issue that, you know, it's uncomfortable to talk about. Um, you're alluding to, to yet another issue here, which is we started this conversation talking about downward spirals, right. And how, how to pull out. And, and then we talked about how in the eighties um, and then into the nineties and then under um you know, in, into the 90s, New York under Giuliani was able to, to create an actual positive spiral, right, where crime was dropping, therefore more people were, were willing to stay in the city, therefore, you know, housing prices went up and property taxes went up and businesses were able, they, they felt, you know, that they were able actually to start a business and, um, and therefore more money went into city coffers. There's a kind of positive spiral I mean, what you're alluding to here is is this negative spiral and, and the, the big elephant in the room for cities making these kinds of policy decisions about crime and education, uh, homelessness, is at what point people who can separate themselves from the consequences of those policies go ahead and do that and you end up having a shrinking tax base and, and a kind of downward spiral. I mean, do you think that New York city is hovering around the sort of event horizon of that kind of self-perpetuating cycle where all that's left in the city, because like this, the, the sort of saner bands and people of means start moving out that the, the voters in the city become more and more concentrated, uh, towards people who actually buy into this ideology because everybody else kind of escapes out. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
Ed Glazer, the Harvard uh, urbanist economist, you know, he, he coined something called the Flynn effect, which is essentially when uh, politicians elect their own people by driving out the ones who can't stand their policies anymore. And that's what happened in Boston in the 30s and 40s when uh, Ed Flynn, you know, who, who hated the, the, the native Protestants, uh, just, you know, essentially wouldn't pave their roads until they all left. And then, you know, that, that gave Boston, you know, 100 years of, of Catholic mayors. Um, I think we're seeing something similar happen in New York. Yeah, if you can't stand it, you leave. Um, and yes, the tax base, look, I mean, every hedge fund that leaves, okay, maybe they take a thousand people with them. Big deal, de Blasio would say. But, uh, as far as the tax base goes, that's a huge hit. Uh, that's one of the problems with progress. I mean, I'm not saying it's a problem. It's just a feature of progressive taxation is that your, uh, your revenue is, is extraordinarily sensitive to small changes at the top of the um, income spectrum, right? So if you tax the rich like heavily and a few of them leave, well, there goes your tax base. Um, like I'm not against that progressive taxation, but you have to, you know, there's a comp, you have to keep them, you know, vaguely satisfied. I mean, that was always the trade-off that, in New York that, okay, the rich will pay a lot, but um, in exchange, there would be public safety, reasonably good schools, good clean transit. Uh, I mean, that was sort of the consensus for the last 45 years or so, that this was the goal. If you turn your back on that and say, well, that's not the contract anymore, then you, know, you can't force people to stay. And the rich have the most options. They can leave much more easily than anybody else can, uh, whether it's to go to the suburbs or Florida. Uh, yeah, we're seeing that happen. Uh, okay, New York City, you know, there are people moving into the city, like, you know, okay, you you moved here. Um, there are young people moving here. Uh, not all of them, it, it, not enough to replace, you know, like if one billionaire leaves, that's that's a big hit. Basically, that's why Bloomberg said, I want every billionaire to live here. Now, the way he went about it wasn't necessarily how everybody, you know, agreed with. But um, but that was the the logic. And there is a certain rationality to it. And there's not that much rationality to driving out all the people who pay for all the amenities. Uh, do, do you think that the, I, I guess we'll wrap up on this. Do you think that there is any chance that the incoming mayor, Eric Adams, is going to be better on any of these policies? I mean, just um, we're recording on Monday and he, he just, for example, for today kind of declined to say that he would uh, continue the expanded vax mandate policy that um, de Blasio put in place, right, which ma makes even children now cannot enter uh, museums or restaurants without mm -hmm. showing proof of vaccine. So Eric Adams declined. He didn't really say he would repeal it, but he declined to say that uh, he would continue it. I mean, is there a chance he's kind of famously said a few things contrary, especially on policing or defunding the police? Um, he's a little more friendly to charter schools than de Blasio, who was like famously 
anti, like just yeah. hysterically anti-charter school. I mean, is is there some hope with the incoming mayor that he might be at least a little, if not conservative, a little more like common sense on a couple of these quality of life issues? There's hope. But uh, let me say, uh, and here's my kind of um, cold water take on this. Um, part of what the progressives have done over the last eight or 10 years is uh, structure policy and law such that uh, it's very difficult, will be very difficult for anyone to undo what they've wrought, in, in, especially with public safety. Okay, for instance, New York City, the NYPD is under federal monitorship regarding stop and frisk uh, and other uh, policing tech tactics. Okay, so there's a federal monitor who surveys all of this quarterly and can, you know, nix what they say. This is all under a judge's orders. They've decriminalized um, a lot of quality of life crimes. They have, uh, you know, instituted the bail reform law, which, you know, is a disaster. Um, it makes, you know, a huge number of crimes non-bailable. So essentially people are released onto the streets almost instantly. Um, they, they're trying to close Rikers, which now whether or not you like how Rikers is, um, and I, I wrote this like when they were first proposing it, that I think that the real goal is to put a hard cap on the number of people that can be in jail. The new jails have a limit of 3,300 people. Well, that's absurd. Uh, so, you know, there's a whole bunch of ways in which uh, even if Eric Adams came in with like this tough on crime Giuliani style approach, his hands would be tied. Uh, this was all written into city state law and, you know, policy. So I think it'll be difficult. I think he has challenges. Yeah. So like everything else, it's institutional. It's, it's really mm -hmm. um, gotten into uh, in this case, the institutions of law and, and, um, and, and in other cases, just into private institutions. But uh, I think that's kind of one of the themes of what we've always discussed here on High Noon is, is the institutionalization of this ideology. Um, but but thank you so much for coming on, Seth Barron. Uh, you know, sometimes I don't like how the right talks about these kinds of issues, you know, urban issues and, and cities, because uh, like cities are framed as though they aren't part of the American fabric, you know. Um, that that they are cesspools, and maybe this goes back to our our um, sort of Jefferson Jeffersonian human farmer kind of um, idealism. Uh, but you know, New York is a flagship city of the United States. Um, American cities are you know part of of who we are as a country, and um, they represent us to the world. And it's it's important, uh, I think, to to actually try to fix them rather than to declare them, you know, sort of cesspools and, uh, right. and, and permanently dead. So, so Seth, thank you so much for, for your book. Again, that book is the last days of New York, a reporter's true tale. And he has chapters on everything we've talked about here, as well as corruption at city hall, um, all, all the kinds of things, uh, that, that a reporter's tale would, would have, um, about, about New York city. Um, so thank you so much for coming on Seth. Thanks so much, Inez. I really enjoyed it.
And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments or questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.